Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 332, The Doolittle Raid Part 3, Japan's Pearl Harbor. As Halsey's Task Force 16 sailed west at 3.10 a.m. on April 18th, the Enterprise's radio detection and ranging, or radar, first used by U.S. naval vessels in early 1940, picked up enemy ships that were about 1,200 miles away from Tokyo. Fortunately, they were 1,200 miles or 1,931 kilometers to the northeast of the Japanese capital, hence not a threat to the current task force. But it was noted for any other task forces that might have to sail that far north. But as busy as Doolittle and his crewmen had been, not to mention the mechanics on the Hornet, other forces, American and Chinese, had been just as busy on the Asian mainland. As the pilots had been training in Florida, General Joseph Stilwell, the U.S. commander in the China-Burma-India Theater, and Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese nationalist leader, had been working on their end to receive the pilots, to make sure they could refuel and then fly on to Chongqing, the nationalist capital. And conditions for the pilots were being set by General Hap Arnold, General of the Army Air Force. Of course, the most crucial element of preparing to meet the raiding flight crews was aviation fuel, which was a rare substance in eastern China. What were the Japanese pushing back the nationalist forces ever westward? Still, Stilwell and Chang were expected to deliver miracles, which they did, by buying gasoline and oil from the Russell Standard Vacuum Oil Company in Calcutta, India. Besides the fuel, Hap Arnold expected multi-bank transmitters, long-range direction finders and receivers at each of the landing sites selected, and there were to be 12 ground crewmen at each landing strip. But above all, and Arnold could not stress this enough, secrecy was to shroud everything. First, to make sure that the American pilots got away safely. Two, in case these locations were to be used in the future. And lastly, to safeguard the Chinese troops in the area from Japanese reprisal. Having large groups of Chinese locals or soldiers obliterated by the enemy would not help keep them loyal to the Allied cause, or to Chang, much less the larger war effort. All items and personnel were to be in place by April 9th. As Vinegar Joe's barking created a flurry of activity on the mainland, Task Force 16 continued westward without incident. Not that Admiral Halsey let his crews take it easy. General quarter drills were regularly scheduled to improve the men's reaction times. On April 17th, the task force was about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers east of Japan. The good news was that the various fuel tanks had just been replenished. The bad news was the worsening weather and resulting rough waves. By now, visibility was down to just two miles. With this being the case, the carriers Hornet and Enterprise, still surrounded by the four swift cruisers, sped on ahead, alone. The slower destroyers and tankers were separated from the task force and told to hold their current position. This allowed the carriers and the cruisers to set a pace of 25 knots. The idea was to dart closer, launch the bombers, and then speed away. But now, the odds began to move away from the raiders. Again, the plan was to launch the bombers on April 19th 
who would then hit their targets and then land in China during the morning of April 20th. And yet, the planners, when working out the details with General Stilwell, did not factor in crossing so many time zones, much less the international dateline, located about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers west of Hawaii. Hence, the bombers would arrive in China a day early. Indeed, this was eventually figured out by Halsey's staff, but as there was radio silence, this discovery could not be shared with all the others. At 5.08 a.m. on April 18th, Halsey ordered the launch of air patrols, but he did so apprehensively, for this very thing that was to keep the fleet safe might give away its location, if detected, and sure enough, at 5.22 a.m., Lieutenant O.B. Wiseman, flying a Douglas SBD Dauntless, dropped a beanbag note on the deck of the Enterprise, saying he had spotted, and was spotted in return, by a ship, about 42 miles ahead. Halsey ordered a course change to avoid that ship. Hopefully, this would be enough. It would not. At 7.44 a.m., lookouts aboard the Hornet spotted an enemy picket ship only 10,000 yards away. It was the damned weather. Halsey knew there would be a picket line off the Japanese coast, of course, but Admiral Yamamoto demanded that it be pushed further out after the Battle of the Coral Sea, which will be covered soon, as the army was, in Yamamoto's estimation, getting too cocky, which could lead to a lack of diligence, which could lead to a defeat. The picket vessel in question was number 23, Nita Maru, a still-hold fishing sampan converted to serve the Japanese Navy. The material it was made out of will come back into the story. And indeed, the Nita Maru's captain had spotted the task force and radioed a warning at 6.30 a.m. to the 5th Fleet's flagship, Kiso. A member of the crew of the Nita Maru had said to the captain, Look, at those two beautiful Japanese carriers. The captain replied, yes, they are beautiful. They are not ours. Hence his message to the flagship. However, this message was also picked up by Halsey's staff, so the Americans knew that the Japanese knew of their presence. The raid had cruised on good luck thus far, but now that was over. The question for Halsey was, how should he react to this? He could retreat or push Doolittle's planes over the side and launch his own fighters and engage the enemy here, or stick to the plan, which is what he chose. Halsey did not have much time to think over his decision and had probably predetermined what he would do in this situation, but time was the one thing the Japanese had, or so they assumed. As Halsey sent over the message to the Hornet, Launch planes to Colonel Doolittle and his gallant command. Good luck and God bless you, Halsey. He also ordered that the Nita Maru be destroyed. To this, the cruiser Nashville raced ahead to engage the Japanese vessel. Having reached a speed of 35 knots, it wasn't long before the Nashville's 6-inch battery was in range, and so started firing. But as each shell made a splash large enough to hide the Nita Maru, when the water came down, the picket line ship was still there, defiant. To be sure, the large swells made accuracy an issue, 
but the gunners had been training for this very thing. Still, all missed. Then, incredibly, the former Japanese trawler fired back with its small caliber gun. That its rounds could not even cover half the distance to the Nashville was not the point. She should have already been on her way to the bottom of the Pacific. Which is when Grumman 4F4 Wildcat fighters from the Enterprise took their turn. They were guided in by the huge spouts of water from Nashville's shells that were bigger than the boat itself. The idea was to strafe the vessel with their 50 caliber machine guns, but they had no better luck as the target went up and down on the waves. Still, the Wildcat fighters stayed at it and eventually reported back that the Nita Maru was badly shot up, that it was doubtful that any of her crew were still alive. And soon after, the tough steel-hulled trawler disappeared beneath the waves. When Halsey was told that the Nashville had fired at least 927 six-inch shells with nothing to show for it, the look he gave could have sunk the enemy ship alone. Clearly, more practice was needed. Someone offered up the possibility that some of the shells probably went right through the target without detonating, which did not help Halsey's mood. And then, more bad news came. First, one of the F-4F Wildcats fired a full 1,200 rounds of 50 caliber ammunition at the vessel, but no one was sure it had done the job. Then, the Nitamaru's machine guns had actually taken out an SBD. This was not the way to win a war. Fortunately, the pilot and his backseat man were recovered from the water. Back to the Japanese 5th Fleet. The message of the spotted carriers was sent on to Combined Fleet Headquarters on the flagship Yamato. First, the message reported that three American carriers were spotted, not two. And as the Americans only had three carriers in the Pacific at the moment, did that mean that they were launching a massive bombing raid against the home islands? Anything was possible. Still, it would have been a daring move. But since the Empire had started the war with its own daring move, Admiral Yamamoto believed it was possible. Hence, he ordered Tactical Method Number 3 in response, which ordered parts of the 1st and 2nd Fleets to move to intercept. Additionally, Admiral Nagumo's carrier force Kido Butai, which had launched the attack at Pearl Harbor and was now near Formosa on its way home from the Indian Ocean, was also ordered to make best speed to engage with the Americans. Perhaps, just perhaps, the one flaw of the attack on Pearl could be rectified here and now. While the various parts of the combined fleet got into motion, the Japanese attitude was cautious optimism rather than panic. Why? As the picket ship had not reported any land-based bombers on one of the carriers, which had a longer range, the now-defending Japanese believed that carrier-based bombers would be carrying out whatever attack was going to happen, which meant the American carriers would have to be only 200 miles from their target, so their planes could then turn around and land safely. Thus, the attack could not take place before the morning of April 20th. There was still time to annihilate the enemy ships before the home islands were directly attacked something that had not happened 
since the 13th century by the Mongols, and that had not gone well for them. Meanwhile, Admiral Mitscher issued orders to get the 16 B-25s ready for takeoff from the Hornet. As Doolittle would take off first, when sitting in the cockpit, he still marveled how short, life-ending short, the flight deck looked from his perspective. In fact, previously, when Doolittle first sat in his B-25, as it was on the deck, he mentioned this to Navy flight instructor Lieutenant Henry F. Miller, who had been tasked with teaching the Raiders short takeoff techniques. After Doolittle spoke of the short distance, Miller replied, Oh, he had taken off using a shorter distance, to which Doolittle shot back, Henry, what name do they use in the Navy for bullshit? The engines of the B-25s came to life, but even at this moment, fuel was fed into their tanks. And right before the doors were sealed, a few five-gallon cans were given to the crew to put at their feet. At this moment, no B-25 had taken off with even half the amount of fuel that Doolittle's pilots had. It was simply the best that could be done for those men. As the Hornet turned into the wind and achieved 30 knots, between its speed and the wind, there was now across the deck 75 knots of wind needed by the planes to take off. As for the deck crews, they either had to lie down or grab onto tie-downs to stop from going over the side. Doolittle, as shown by Lieutenant Miller, went full throttle while practically standing on his brakes. The idea was to then release and burst forward and gather as much speed as possible before he ran out of flight deck. Working with the pilots, the flight deck control officer would give the go signal as the carrier was currently falling down from a wave. The idea was, by the time the plane made it to the other end, the carrier would either be launching the plane horizontally, or even better, upward. When the signal was given, Colonel Doolittle released the brakes, while crewmen removed the wooden wheel blocks. Just before this, many bets were placed on the outcome, and at least half of them said that only half of the Raiders would not end up in the ocean during takeoff. Meanwhile, Hollywood director John Ford was recording the entire event for posterity, should things go well. Doolittle achieved a textbook liftoff, but as he was only flying 30 knots faster than the carrier was moving, he appeared to be hovering overhead. But as the seconds passed, he continued to pull away and upward. Now seeing that it was possible, the 15 other pilots followed suit, achieving a successful takeoff. Not that this moment was not marred. When Lieutenant Bill Farrow was taking off, he was one of the last, aviation machinist mate Robert W. Wall lost his grip on the line and was pushed by the wind into Farrow's propeller losing an arm at the shoulder. As fuel was the main concern, there was no rendezvous above the carrier. The planes, as they took off, made their way west. Two minutes after the last of Doolittle's raiders left the Hornet's deck, Task Force 16 turned east, now pointing at Pearl Harbor, and increased speed to 25 knots. After four hours of flying, the first attacking planes reached Tokyo Bay just before noon, April 18th, 
and they came in low to avoid detection from either the ground or the air. And like the opening minutes before the first shot was fired at Pearl Harbor, the locals who spotted the bombers, thinking they were Japanese, waved as the planes roared overhead. Then came the next part of, you had to see it to believe it. While flying over Tokyo Bay, the leading bombers flew by several enemy military aircraft, close enough that on board one of those planes, the crewmen became confused, as clearly one of the pilots flying one of the bombers was a Caucasian. Incidentally, one of the military planes had on board Prime Minister Tojo. What could have been? Still, no one raised an alarm. Eventually, someone figured out that the strange-looking, squat, black, clearly military planes were not of the Empire. Thus, the air raid alarm was activated. This was followed by panicked civilians running around and, of course, AA fire. But as the planes had been flying low, the first bursts went off far above the bombers. The first flight of planes, those with Colonel Doolittle, now that they were near their targets in Tokyo, rose to about 1,500 feet. The raiders, overall, were broken into groups of three or four, given primary and secondary targets by Doolittle himself. In all, targets had been selected in Tokyo, Yokohama, Kobe, Nagoya, and Osaka. As for the Japanese capital, three of the five flights had their targets there. The fourth flight would target Kawagawa, Yokohama, and Yokosuka Naval Base. The last flight would break formation only before going on to their individual targets in Nagoya, Osaka, and Kobe. Doolittle believed and hoped that this staggering of attacks would keep his men safe. When it came to bombing Tokyo, the three flights would hit targets in northern, central, and southern Tokyo, respectively. Within Tokyo, some of the primary targets were the Nippon Electric Company, Tokyo Gas and Electric Company, and an army arsenal. The other flights would be hitting industrial sites or manufacturing facilities. One flight went right over the Imperial Palace, but Doolittle beat it into his men not to drop anything there, and the pilots towed the line. Further, the targets were believed to have a minimum of people near them at this time. An hour-long of hell for the people of Tokyo and nearby areas was about to begin. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Having crossed over the Japanese coastline, about 50 miles northeast of Tokyo, Doolittle turned to the southeast to join the first flight. But before joining them, Doolittle's crew spotted about nine KI-27 Army fighters, or Nates as they were called, behind them. But for whatever reason, the fighters did not engage. Later, during the bombing, this would change. But the pilots of the Nates would report that their 7.7mm ammunition was able to inflict little damage on the B-25s. Doolittle and his flight team went to 1,200 feet. At 12.30 p.m., his bombardier dropped four incendiary cluster bombs at an armory, hitting the target on its northeast and southwest sides. AA fire soon rose to meet the B-25, but for all its intensity, the bomber flew away undamaged. Then Doolittle turned his plane west, then south, making for China. The three other planes in Doolittle's flight was led by First Lieutenant Travis Hoover. Hoover had been flying to Doolittle's right. He was aiming for the arsenal as well, but his part of it had him bombing in between a railroad station and the Imperial Palace. Hoover's bombardier, 2nd Lieutenant Richard E. Miller, released his three demolition weapons and one incendiary bomb at 900 feet instead of the planned 1,500 but the target was hit, and if proof was needed, debris from the explosion actually flew up high enough to arc over Hoover's B-25. Having done their job, the B-25 flew to the southwest through Kawasaki and Yokohama. From there, they were soon over open waters and on their way to China. The B-25, labeled Whiskey Pete, flown by First Lieutenant Robert M. Gray, left the Hornet at 8.30 a.m. and made his way past the Imperial Palace to his first target, a steel mill. The demolition bomb was dropped, but no one in the plane saw a resulting explosion. The next target struck, a gas company, was also dead on, but the crew wondered had they been effective. There was no confusion about their third target, a chemical factory, as their demolition bomb set the entire structure ablaze. Now on their way to China, the crew took this opportunity to machine gun a military barracks. But it was the last plane of the first flight formation that seemed to pull all the possible bad luck towards themselves. Piloted by 1st Lieutenant Everett W. Holstrom, soon after leaving the Hornet at 8.33 a.m., his plane started heading off course by 15 degrees. Once over Japan, the crew discovered that they were 80 miles from their target and that their left-wing gas tank had a leak. Trying to decide how best to proceed, the B-25 was then set upon by two Japanese fighters. Getting ready to defend themselves, it was then that they discovered that their top gun turret was inoperable due to an electrical system malfunction. This left the crew with a 30 caliber nose gun, as their two rear machine guns were fake, like on all the other B-25s, to save on weight. With the odds stacked against them, the pilot decided 
to drop his bombs in Tokyo Bay. At least he hit a private residence and then maxed out his speed to 270 miles per hour. As the fighters chasing him could not go beyond 250, they started to fall back. The B-25 made its way south to the closest landing strip. The lead plane of the second flight, flown by Captain David M. Jones, lifted off at 8.37 a.m. Like the previous plane, Jones's B-25 had trouble finding their landmarks once they were over land. Then the AA fire added to the confusion and tension. Between being out of place and unwilling to fly back north to hit their assigned targets, Jones sought out targets of opportunity. With that, the crew managed to hit a large oil tank just south of the Imperial Palace with a demolition bomb. Then, one after another, in a rather small area, three more buildings were hit with their remaining bombs. Though the AA fire was intense the whole time, the explosions kept happening either behind or to the side of Jones's B-25. The second B-25 from the second flight, First Lieutenant Dean Hallmark's Green Hornet, needed two bombs and two bomb runs to destroy the Central Tokyo Steel Mill. This was risky, giving the same AA gunners another crack at the plane, but Hallmark deemed it worth it. The final plane from the second flight was First Lieutenant Ted W. Lawson's ruptured duck. Leaving the Hornet at 8.43 a.m., it was on one of his demolition bombs that had the Imperial Japanese Naval Medals, along with an inscription that read, I don't want to set the world on fire, just Tokyo. As the ruptured duck closed in on Tokyo, the crew spotted six enemy fighters above them at about 11,000 feet, but for whatever reason, they did not dive down and pursue. Not that it mattered much, as the duck was soon the target of AA fire, while simultaneously suffering from top-gun turret problems. So, skipping their primary targets, they went after a large steam power plant, a factory, and a factory-looking building to the southeast of the Imperial Palace. But for all this, the ruptured duck was not actively pursued by enemy fighters. The last group of bombers bound for Tokyo was led by Captain Edward J. Ski York. York lifted off at 8.46 a.m., but his was a doomed mission as maintenance crews in California switched out two of his carburetors. They thought they were doing York and his crew a favor, but modifications had been made specifically for this mission. When York and company reached the mainland, they were lost and could not find Tokyo. And with their fuel consumption well above what was expected, York made the decision to seek out targets of opportunity. Or rather, target. York, looking at his fuel, decided on dropping all four of his bombs on a single target, a factory with several rail lines leading to it. With that done, the question was which direction to head in. They could make for Korea, that was closer, but also controlled by the Japanese. They could head north and make for Soviet territory, which Doolittle had told them not to do. What they could not choose was to make for China, as York calculated they would fall into the sea while still 300 miles or 482 kilometers away. York would take his chances with Doolittle and the Russians. He turned 
to the northwest. Flying in as a part of York's flight was First Lieutenant Harold F. Watson's whirling dervish. The four-hour flight to the Japanese coastline was uneventful, but that changed when the dervish was over enemy territory, for now the defenders were fully activated, if still a bit confused. Using the Imperial Palace, bridges, and railways to line up their target, the Japan Special Steel Company, there were other targets like a gas tank or the Haneda Airport, but the AA fire was intense, so Wapson dropped all he had on the steel company, though it seemed that only one demolition bomb hit the target proper. But what ruined a perfect bomb run was an approaching enemy fighter from below. Technical Sergeant Eldridge V. Scott, the acting engineer-slash-gunner, reported near the end of the bomb run that an aircraft was climbing up at them from behind. When it came level, Scott let loose with the rear turret's twin machine guns. Still, this had spooked Watson enough, along with the AA fire, to keep his speed about 225 miles an hour, which probably threw off the crew's accuracy. The good news was that Scott hit the enemy plane enough for one of its wings to fall away. The smaller plane disappeared. It never got a clean shot. With his bomb bay now empty, Watson headed south and then east to China. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. The last B-25 to attack Tokyo was 1st Lieutenant Richard O. Joyce's plane. It took off at 8.53 a.m. and, ironically, was not supposed to be there. This was the plane that was to have taken off once the Hornet was 100 miles away from California, so the Army pilots could see how it was done. But as that had been canceled, one more bomber was now making its way to Tokyo. As can be imagined, the AA fire was intense, and the chances of being picked up by an enemy pursuit plane was high. Still, Joyce landed two demolition bombs on the support buildings of the Japan Special Steel Company and a single demolition and incendiary bomb in the industrial area of Shiba, which was densely populated. This bombing of this area was not supposed to happen, but at the time, Joyce's B-25 was set upon by nine Zero fighters. The bomber was hit in the fuselage and the tail area. Fortunately, the rear turret gunner, Staff Sergeant Edwin W. Horton Jr., shot down one fighter and possibly a second. Joyce and company were soon on their way to China. 
Colonel Doolittle had laid out his attack plan, knowing that the situation would get worse for each later arriving B-25, which is why he had planes hit three different parts of the capital, and the later flights would hit areas around Tokyo Bay, but not Tokyo itself, hopefully saving them from AA fire and pursuit planes. As for the Japanese torpedo planes that would be sent out to hunt for the Americans' carriers, and there were about 41 of them at this moment, that was Halsey's problem. The next flight was led by Captain C. Ross Greening and his Harry Carrier. His approaching flight was also uneventful. However, by the time Greening was airborne, an increased headwind ate up more fuel than anticipated. Also, as his target was in Yokohama, about 10 miles or 16 kilometers southwest of Tokyo, and a navigation issue had him arriving above Tokyo, he had to use up more fuel and time to get into position. As he traveled just east of the capital, four strange-looking fighters got in behind him. In time, the Americans would learn that these were KI-61 aircraft, a heavily armed, specialized interceptor. However, bullets respect nothing. As the first fighter moved in to take a shot, the turret gunner, Sergeant Melvin J. Gardner, managed to hit the would-be attacker in the wing. The fighter wobbled off and then crashed. A second plane was hit, and flames were the result. The last two planes closed in, but Gardner was out of ammunition. The crew would just have to hope that the B-25 could take some damage and stay in the air. As he was still being pursued, Greening dropped his plane to 600 feet, hoping this would help keep the fighters off his tail. It didn't work. But he wasn't willing to deviate from the plan. And as planned, his four bombs were dropped on an oil refinery and storage area. The local workers there had put thatched covering on the roof, hoping it would confuse any would-be attacker. But Greening's crew had done their research. The result was a large column of smoke that could be seen from 50 miles away. After that, Greening turned to the southwest and poured on the speed. The next plane to approach was First Lieutenant William M. Bauer's Fickle Finger. Bauer had lifted off at 8.50 a.m. and flew next to Greening, that is, until they reached the coast. From there, Bauer turned south and went down the coastline although he, too, was assigned a target in Yokohama. Suddenly, there were three pursuit planes behind the Fickle Finger, but for whatever reason, they stayed about 1,000 yards back and did not fire, which suited Bauer and his crew just fine. While being watched, Bauer and company, at about 1,100 feet and doing 200 miles per hour, dropped bombs on an oil refinery, a factory, and a rail line. But after all the bombs were away, the crew spotted a power station southwest of their targets. This was too tempting to pass up. So Bauer went in and used the 30 caliber nose gun to shoot up the building and nearby transformers. Sparks erupted, but if there was any loss of power, that would have to happen without the fickle finger sticking around to watch. It was time to head to China. The last plane of the fourth flight was piloted by First Lieutenant Edgar M. McElroy. His target was the Yokosuka Naval Base at the bottom of Tokyo Bay, 
below the capital, on the western shore. McElroy had taken off at 9.01 a.m. and flew in with Greening's flight. But once the coastline was reached, he separated from the flight and flew along the eastern edge of Tokyo to get into position. But being this close to the capital, he and his received much attention from the AA guns below. Fortunately, due to the confusion created by the overall attack, no pursuit planes closed in. The Yokosuko Naval Facility was used to repair ships and at the moment convert the submarine tender Rahuyo into an aircraft carrier, which is why it was sitting in dry dock when McElroy flew over. On board, McElroy had a 500-pound demolition bomb and an incendiary device that had 125 four-pound bombs, which would go on to successfully start multiple fires in the nearby wooden workshops and warehouse area. McElroy went in at 1,500 feet, and his first bomb hit a large ship loading crane, which splintered into a thousand pieces, according to the flight crew. Another bomb hit the side of the Rahuo, which caught on fire and then listed to one side. But before it was out, this converted carrier would be completed and assigned to one operation in the Marianas. That was the sum total of her contribution to the war. Other targets of the crew included support facilities and a second ship. The only surviving photos comes from McElroy's crew, specifically the co-pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Richard A. Knobloch. To be sure, most of the flight leader's planes had cameras in them, but none of their photos survived. No, it was Knobloch's personal camera, bought in California just before their departure, that captured the only images that survived. After their bomb run, McElroy flew behind a hill to avoid increasing AA fire, then turned south, hoping the enemy would think he was heading to a carrier south of the country. But later, he turned west to make for China. As for the last flight of bombers, they were to hit targets in Osaka, Kobe, and Nagoya, all to the west by southwest of Tokyo. This was to spread the destruction and thus fear that the Japanese were to feel, reminding them that war was a two-way street. Major John A. Hilger and his crew left the Hornet at 9.07 a.m. and found what they believed were the targets given to them. Flying at 1,500 feet and 205 miles an hour, the crew dropped an incendiary bomb on a group of main barracks of the 3rd Military Division Headquarters next to a set of warehouses that, hopefully, was being used by an oil company there. Next, they struck a factory building and, finally, a plant of the Mitsubishi Aircraft Works. By now, the AA fire was intense, so Hilger dropped the plane down to 250 feet. From there, they headed south and then west. Flying in with Hilger was First Lieutenant Donald Smith and his crew. But when Hilger reached Nagoya, Smith flew on to Kobe, another 50 miles or 80 kilometers to the west by southwest. Going this far away from Tokyo, there was no AA fire, nor pursuit planes. However, the crew did almost crash into a 2,500-foot mountain, four miles northeast of Osaka. Their intel was far from perfect. 
Using his four incendiary bombs, Smith hit a steelworks factory, the Kawasaki Dockyard, the Electric Machinery Works, the Kawasaki Aircraft Factory, and the Dockyard Company Aircraft Works, numbers 10 and 11. Only now that his bombs were released did AA fire rise up to challenge the American bomber. But Smith simply poured on the speed and was soon out of range. The last B-25 to leave the Hornet was First Lieutenant William Farrow's Bat Out of Hell, departing at 9.21 a.m. As touched upon previously, the high winds made the Bat Out of Hell slide backward to the point one of its propellers cut a sailor's arm off. Farrow was devastated by this, but knew the mission came first. By now, even far away Osaka, 10 miles due east of Kobe, was alert and harassed Farrow with its AA fire. In fact, Farrow turned away from Osaka and went back to Nagoya to find targets of opportunity. There was AA fire there, too, but in the end, Farrow and his bombardier, Jacob D. DeShazer, settled on an oil tank and aircraft factory. Soon, pursuit planes were on Farrow's tail, but his speed took care of that problem. Amazingly, all 16 of Doolittle's raiders made it safely away from the Empire's most heavily defended airspace. Representing all of Japan, when Admiral Yamamoto received the report that Tokyo had been bombed, his body reacted by crumbling in on itself. He took to his stateroom and hid away for hours. His next-in-command moved heaven and earth, sending planes, subs, warships, and carriers to find the American carriers, but he had to know it was too late for that. The Americans would have launched the bombers and left. That was prudent, and that is what he would have done. No, the Americans were gone. Still, the gods may deliver them up for revenge, which is what the majority of Halsey's men were thinking as they sailed away. Revenge. As Task Force 16 sailed away right after the last B-25 lifted off, its radio operators tuned in to Radio Tokyo. As orders were being sent out in the clear, that is, not in code, Clearly, the Japanese were confused, frustrated, panicked. At 2 p.m. local time, but noon in Tokyo, the English-language broadcaster was brought up short. There was a few seconds of silence, then whispers. The American listeners were guessing that the first B-25 had been spotted over Tokyo, or it had dropped its first bomb. The radio went silent for about 30 minutes, and what replaced it was a shrill-voiced Japanese announcer. The broadcast was piped all around the various task force vessels. As best they could, those on each ship that spoke Japanese began to translate. There had been an atrocity. Bombs had fallen on temples, schools, train stations, and hospitals. Schoolchildren lay dead in the streets. Truly, panic had set in. Then a woman's voice broke in. Give your blood, as men at the front are giving theirs. Your lives are in danger. Your country is in danger. Tomorrow, even tonight, your children may be blown to bits. Give your blood. Save them. Save yourselves. Save Japan. A few more hours later, calmer voices took to the radio. They declared that the military and civil defense officials were firmly in control 
of the situation. Little actual damage had been done, and most, if not all, of the planes had been shot down. Back in Washington, when President Roosevelt was asked where the planes had come from, his deadpan reply was, they came from our new secret base at Shangri-La. Yes, this was a joke, but it was needed, as only just a week before, 78,000 Filipino and American troops had surrendered at Bataan. After Pearl Harbor, the war in the Pacific, for the Americans, was personal. Now, it was personal for the Japanese as well. Postscript. It was thought at the time that with the task force being spotted by the Nitamaru, Doolittle's pilots lost the true element of surprise, but also flying distance, as they had to launch at least 120 miles further away than intended. This was true enough, but it also possibly saved Task Force 16. Not only did the combined fleet have six carriers heading to the waters east of Tokyo, but also had at least 24 Zeros and 25 Kate torpedo planes, with dozens more on standby. To be sure, Halsey, Michener, and the men with them would have fought to the death, but that would not alter the even weaker state of Allied naval power in the Pacific had one or both carriers been sent to the depths below. To the point that perhaps a new, more sustained attack may have been planned against Pearl Harbor. Greetings, everyone. So I'm back from uh, Nags Head in North Carolina. Actually, Avon, Kinnikeet, right, which is right above Hatteras Island for you members who have been listening to that series. So as far as the new members that I just want to say welcome aboard and thank you very much, we have Jordan Davies from New Zealand, Paul Gardner from Kent, UK, Michael Armstrong from Chesapeake, Virginia. Hey, Michael, I just drove by there, through there, on my way home from the Outer Banks. Uh, Michael Clee from... Asapi, New Hampshire. Sorry, Michael, I'm sure I got that wrong. Stuart uh, Mungo. Jeff Stanley from Parkland, Florida. Jeff, please be careful. I know things are kind of crazy in Florida right now. And Alan Hammer. As far as those who have made donations, Ian Donaldson from North Ayrshire, UK. Randy Troyer. Andrew uh, Courtier, Courtier. Andrew Sousa. Brenda Brinker from Rimmersburg, Pennsylvania. Scott Menarsing, sorry Scott, I'm sure I butchered that, Robin uh, Laconche, and uh, Robin also sent an email, thank you very much for the wonderful email, and then Joel Hollis from Texas. And I'd also like to say hi to Anders Larson in Hong Kong. Um, he's basically offered me his couch if I ever make it to Hong Kong. Uh, Anders, I will be taking you up on that when uh, COVID permits, because I've always been dying to go to Hong Kong, China, uh, everywhere, everywhere in Asia. Uh, who knows when that will happen, but that, that is in, uh, those on my bucket list. We'll just have to see how it goes. But anyway, uh, I'm back now. We're, we'll have one more episode to wrap up the Doolittle Raid, and then I'm going to probably focus on Malta, some stuff going on there because it affected the war, obviously, in the Mediterranean and North Africa and the Middle East, and do that, and then get to a very special event in August of 1942, that saved the North African continent for the Allies and doomed it for the Axis. <laughs>